Welcome to Purdue Commercial AgCast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Mintert, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, and today we're going to be reviewing the results from the Indiana Farmland Values and Cash Rent Survey conducted in June of this year. Joining me today for the discussion are my colleagues, Dr. Todd Keithy and Dr. Michael Langemeyer. Thanks for joining us, Todd and Michael. Thank Glad you. to be here. So, Todd, could you share some details with us? Uh, you've kind of taken over here a little bit in terms of overseeing the Farmland Value Survey. It's one that's been around for quite a while, going all the way back to 1970, right? Yeah, so it's been around since the early 70s. Um, and the farmland is a really important part of the ag finance uh, makeup or world. It's about 80% of the balance sheet for the farm sector. It's usually the largest investment, biggest piece of uh, uh, farms retirement plan and uh, uh, financial holdings. And so it's been important for a very long time for us to keep track of where farmland prices are and also where they're headed. Um, what are the key drivers shaping that? And so we survey a bunch of experts around the state um, rural appraisers, ag land uh, manager, ag lenders, and farm managers, uh, and some farmers as well, uh, to just get their handle on sort of what's going on with the current farmland market, um, so we can make uh, accurate decisions and planning for the year coming. Yeah, so it is in a, essentially an opinion survey, right, as opposed to one that's transaction based, correct? C- uh, correct, and that's actually pretty common. So a lot of states, um, you know, especially going back into the '70s, it was hard to get. Uh, financial records, or in some places they were subject to disclosure laws. And so, you know, places like Iowa State, uh, the Federal Reserve, a lot of people do these sort of opinion surveys, but the key is that we're asking people whose professional lives touch the farmland market routinely enough that that hopefully those opinions are pretty close to what's accurate. Uh, Plus, I mean, we get into the weeds of it here, uh, but there's a lot of reasons also why transaction prices maybe aren't the best judge of what's sort of the value of of our farmland, because those that are sold are kind of sold non-randomly. They're usually settled a state. Um, in some places, they're so infrequent that, you know, it's hard to differentiate what's sort of a unique, weird sale from what's sort of the general kind of market pattern in that area. So, yeah, well, I think one of the things you run into with transactions is not all of those transactions are really arm's length transactions, right? Yeah, actually about half are not arm's length transactions. Um, so there's that problem. But then also, you know, we have cases where, you know, it, it seems like every time I talk to a group of people about farmland prices, they'll ask me about some particular sale in their area. Um, and you can have, you know, cases where somebody's wanted a parcel for a long time and it's the first time in 30 years it's come up or someone has plans to develop it. And it's really hard to tease out sort of from that transaction price. What's the general piece of information we can use in our management plans? Okay, so let's take a look at some of the results. So you've got uh, survey results for various qualities of uh, farmland. You've got top quality, average quality, and poor quality farmland for the state average. And a comparison of June 2020 versus June 2019 would be of interest, I think, to our listeners. Yeah, so across all three quality bands, and those those quality bands are based on sort of productivity of the land, right? So we asked the respondents to give what is their expectation for long run uh, corn yield in that in, in, in their area, in their county. Um, and so in each case, we had land prices are up from a year ago, uh, which is uh, maybe somewhat surprising to some folks. We've had, you know, we had rapid appreciation from about 2007 through about 2014. Since then, prices have weakened a bit or kind of hovered around stable. 
Uh, and so this, you know, gain that we had over the last year of for top quality land, about four and a half percent. So we're seeing it about 8,600 or so close to that uh, for an average price. Um, and then we've seen a little bit more, uh, less of an uptick in the average at 3.2%. And then poor actually rose the fastest at 6.3%. Uh, so hanging around 5,700 on average. So Michael, that poor quality uh, price rise of 6% is one that I think always kind of puzzles you. Uh, we've seen that strength in the poor quality land, both in rental rates and farmland values for some time. Yeah, it, it's been a bit of a puzzler. And, and the reason I say that is, uh, is when you look at the productivity and the possible net returns for poor quality land, it, it appears that if anything, uh, the poor quality land should be declining in value. But having said that, I think it's very important to point out that uh, a graduate student and myself have done some research looking at the relationship uh, between cash rents and land values and net return to land. And what we found is uh, the fundamentals are, are not quite as important to the valuation of poor quality land. And so maybe this isn't that big a surprise. You know, if, if net return to land is not driving cash rents and land values as closely for poor quality land, if those are somewhat separated uh, compared to average and top, that means that the the, uh, the factors impacting poor quality land are something other, uh, perhaps, in some cir- circumstances than the fundamentals. Tom, yeah. I think you've taken a look at that as well, right? Yeah, I was going to say that actually matches some research uh, that I've done and also some research that Jeff Stokes uh, at the University of Nebraska did uh, uh, some a study several years ago now with uh, the Iowa State Land Survey. So they, their survey goes back very far as well. It's very similar structure in terms of what the data puts up. And they say that, you know, that the, uh, their words are that, you know, low quality land is most prone to bubbles, meaning that they're more disconnected from the fundamental drivers. So we think of the fundamentals being, you know, what can we expect by farming it or cash renting it out as far as, far as a return? So you, you broke out the values uh, and asked the survey respondents really to break out the values into two six month periods. So you looked at June of 2019 to December of 2019. And then you looked at the price change from December of 19 to June of 2020, and the results are quite a bit different. Yeah, so uh, maybe it's important to take a little step back and say the reason we ask about December is that, you know, the bulk of farmland transactions will happen in the winter when the crop isn't in the ground. Um, and so that's a really important marketing period for, for farmland. Uh, so they, the survey is traditionally always asked about December uh, as well as June. Um, and what we found is that the appreciation that we saw over the last year actually took place in the last half of 2019. So between June and December 2019, farmland prices rose, you know, five and a half percent for top, five percent for average and poor up at about 8.7 percent. So quite a substantial gain there. Now, since December, the respondents suggest that land prices have actually declined. So we saw a one percent slip in top. Uh, average slip by 1.7 and poor down 2.2%. So it, they all sort of show this dynamic pattern of really strong increases towards the end of 2019 and a, and a uh, weakening or softening of, of the first half of this year. And that's a, not too surprising, I guess, given what's taken place with respect to ag prices here in the first half of uh, 2020 and, you know, down the, across the board weakness in, in commodity prices, uh, uh, reductions in farm income. So not too surprising there, although uh, we'll talk a little bit more about some other information that might suggest that that's not always the case. But 
You've also taken a look at those farmland values uh, relative to inflation. So you've looked at inflation-adjusted values going back to the beginning of the survey as well as the nominals. That's kind of interesting as well. Yeah, so the idea with, you know, controlling for inflation, and inflation is, you know, what economists use to just say, you know, the general price level of all of the things that we buy, right? And so prices are kind of always going up. Um, and so we want to put things into sort of today's dollars of what would a 2020 dollars would, would the previous prices look like? And we've seen uh, prices decline since the 2014 peak, but we're still well above, uh, you know, those long run uh, inflation adjusted prices, you know, not far off of what we saw in the, in the 70s and 80s, you know, late 70s into the early 80s. Um, and, and not too different than what we saw five or six years ago. And so, uh, you know, I often say that it, you know, falling from great to okay feels a lot like going from okay to bad. Uh, so people have, you know, complain about prices coming down a bit, uh, but we're still, you know, historically uh, sitting very well. And it's also true that it's pretty rare for farmland values to decline over an extended period of time. I think over the last, what, half century or so, or actually more than a half a century, they've only been uh, two periods when farmland values have declined for five years or more. Yeah, in fact, so the USDA has tracked farmland prices, you know, since its creation as an agency, uh, pretty much, or a department in the government. Um, and we, the only periods of sustained declines were that 1980s farm financial crisis, and then also a period around the Great Depression, actually started just ahead of the Great Depression, um, but you know, the sort of build up and, and run down in the, in the 1920s. And so that kind of feeds into people's uh, expectations about farmland values, and that kind of leads us to something else, I think. You asked people uh, on the survey to identify what the positive influences are on farmland values, as well as what they think might be pulling down farmland values. And you've got a pretty wide array of things you look at there or ask people about. Let's talk about the positive and negative influence on farmland values in the current market environment. Yeah, so the first one, the one that always pops up uh, first is interest rates that had the highest positive value, highest positive rating. Um, and so the basic idea there is that, you know, if we think of farmland the way we are, are trained in our intro to econ or intro to finance classes, there's a sort of net present value. The idea is we, any asset, the price is based on what we can expect to earn by owning it. But then we discount those future returns. Uh, the future may not happen, or we prefer money now to in the future. Uh, and so as when interest rates are low, that allows us to capitalize that income at a greater rate. So that puts positive pressure on farmland prices. And um, you know, even before the pandemic, the Fed was slowly lowering rates uh, out of fear of a recession. Then at the start of the pandemic, we had surprise rate decreases. So the Fed is uh, decreased short-run borrowing costs, um, and at the long end, which is a little bit more of an organic uh, determination of mortgage rates or long-run borrowing rates, we've seen those fall as well. So that puts positive pressure on farmland prices. And so even if we see our income start to decline, as we have over the last several years, being able to have low interest rates to support that capitalization process puts upward pressure on land values. Yeah, so then you've also got uh, some other key factors that are listed. Uh, I think low returns on alternative investments is something I hear about whenever I talk to farmers about farmland values. Yeah, so I mean, the basic idea is, you know, where are you going to put your money? If you have some extra money that you're saving for retirement or, um, you know, intergenerational transfer or just any kind of future consumption. Uh, I mean, there have been times where the stock prices have been and uh, equity markets have been really good. 
um, and some times where they've been really rough. Um, and that seems to be sometimes within the same week. You know, you check it uh, day to day and it fluctuates quite a bit. Uh, where farmland offers you relatively stable returns year to year. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people see that as a real safe investment. And in times of economic turmoil, there is a sort of flight to safety or a preference for safety, safe assets. Yeah, the thing I hear about when I talk to farmers at, at sales and, and people that are potentially interested in investing in farmland is uh, they often compare the returns that they can get on a CD, for example, at a local lending institution uh, to the returns from farmland. And if, when you look at it that way, it starts to look favorably. Oh, yeah. I mean, CD rates are, are very low. Um, and the other part, uh, too, is that we have uh, you know, limited supply. So we ask, you know, how do you rate the number of transactions in your area? now compared to a year ago. And for the last three years, the majority of respondents are saying lower, right? So they keep thinking that the supply is getting smaller and smaller, which helps, you know, support the, the prices that, you know, if you're wanting to purchase farmland and there's only so much available on the market, uh, that, that'll command a premium. And I think you've looked at this as well. And, and from a longer term perspective, the annual turnover rate in farmland is always quite low. And so actually a fairly small change there could have a big impact, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, one and a half to 2% of farmland changes hands in a given year. And about half of that is non-arms length. So it's trading among related parties. Um, so really about 1% of farmland is actually available for anyone or all of us to go out and purchase it or attempt to purchase at a time. And so even under kind of normal conditions, um, you know, there's not a huge supply of farmland uh, on the marketplace. And so if there are cases where, you know, one of the things now is we're in this period of economic turmoil, people are in kind of a wait and see attitude. Maybe they don't want to give up some kind of income stream that they would have if they're renting the land out. Um, and so uh, it puts a lot of people on kind of a uh, holding pattern. Maybe uh, we'll continue to suppress the supply. Yeah, the supply of land on the market is probably the toughest variable to get a handle on, but we know it's had an impact. And I guess, uh, Michael, you and I kind of remember the 1980s pretty well. And one of the issues in the middle part of the 80s when land prices really declined pretty sharply was the fact that we had a relatively large uh, supply of land on the market, an unusually large supply of land on the market. Yeah, you, the land market, you know, if it goes up, if it goes up quite a bit, it, we simply can't absorb that much land without reducing the price. And so, and so this limited supply impacts things on both ends. Yeah, Short, so. like it is right now and helps support prices but if it if it's much higher than it typically is that has a obviously a very uh, large uh, downward pressure on land values so the last one that you identified in the survey and you commented that this always seems to show up but it's always a little hard to understand exactly what people mean by it and that is inflation yeah, it's it's a little bit tricky because, you know, as economists, I, mean, I was certainly taught that, you know, one of the things about farmland is it's a hedge against inflation, right? So anything that produces commodities, whenever the price of all goods are going up, will go up because, you know, commodities are in all of those basic goods. So things like mines or farmland are good to hold in inflationary periods. Um, but we've seen, you know, very low inflation uh, on the, on the, edge of sort of no inflation over the past you know, 20 to 25 years. Um, but yet people still see that, that, you know, that's a positive influence on farmland, um, even though we don't seem to have inflation. So, uh, I mean, I, the correlation of anything with a, with a line of zeros, um, I guess is, is high as long as they're both kind of flat. <laughs> 
And that could be a reflection to some extent of people just having some institutional memory and going back to thinking about how it did impact uh, things perhaps in the 70s and, and maybe the very beginning of the 80s. Yeah, and, and although it is also important to point out that, you know, a lot of farmland prices is, is based on long-run expectations, right? So the typical farmland owner will own it for 30 years, and then ha- we know that a lot of those pass them to their immediate heirs. Um, and so, you know, it's not just about maybe the inflation that we're experiencing, but the inflation they're expecting. Um, and there are definitely, I mean, I, I go to extension events, people always seem to be expecting high amounts of inflation in the future. Um, I know as economists, our opinions will divert about what that inflation looks like or when we'll get it. Um, but I think it's also not just about what's sort of happening today, but what people are expecting in the, in, over the life that they plan to own the asset. So it's also interesting to look at what the survey respondents had to say about the negative influences on farmland values. Yeah, uh, those are not a surprise, right? So low returns uh, is, is a big one. Also the low commodity prices, and those things are intertwined. Um, so low crop prices, low livestock prices, um, really just sort of those small returns. Uh, yeah, I, I know Michael's done some work about you know, what net returns look like compared to average cash rents. And so how much money can you expect to earn on rented ground? Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of pressure there in terms of saying, well, this just doesn't pencil out. Um, can I afford to pay this price unless my returns are better? And the last one, I think, was uh, poor liquidity. And Michael, I know you've looked at that. Uh, we've talked about that a number of times in other programs, the lack of liquidity out there, at least the reduction in, in liquidity uh, from a farmer perspective. The, the average liquidity is, is very low. If you look at the USDA data or if you look at the, some of the uh, state uh, Farm Management Association data, but the important thing when you're thinking about liquidity is there still is a group of people out there, and, and it's, not, it's not that small a group that has good liquidity. And because the, the farm market farm market is so thin, if those people with good liquidity are interested in buying land, uh, that, that poor liquidity, that average poor liquidity may or may not have that large effect. Certainly, I think much smaller than the low net returns. Yeah, good point. So, Todd, you've been asking people also about uh, projected uh, land value changes. Uh, looking here, uh, um, for the, all of 2020, actually. So let's talk about that for just a bit. Yeah, so we asked, you know, what do you think land prices are going to be in this coming December? Um, and so it, it's not surprising that uh, the majority of our respondents expect prices to continue to climb over the last six months of this year um, and a little bit higher pace than the, the decline of the last six months. So they were looking at the time. This was taken in June, and I know we're at a time where opinions change rapidly. Um, but right now, as of June, they were projecting you know, top quality down about one and a half percent, two percent at average, and then the poor at a three percent decline. So, to sort of further those declines that we've seen over the first half of the year, um, you know, eating away at that positive gain we had over the previous year, over since 2019. So. I think all three of us uh, are in contact with farm managers and people in the real estate business. And, you know, we keep hearing some stories about some pretty positive farmland values here in the late spring and summer. And I think maybe surprisingly strong. Um, How does the data on the survey match up or maybe not match up with what we're hearing in some of those casual conversations? It's sort of interesting. Uh, There's a couple things that jump out at me. One, which was, 
you know, at the start of the pandemic, we, you know, obviously we're kind of business as usual. Um, but then as we've had disruptions for, you know, abilities for groups to meet, uh, for example, you know, we can't have online or in-person auctions with big crowds. Uh, so a lot of things move to online sales or listed sales. Um, and the thing people say, you know, we're still getting really good prices, really strong prices. One of the interesting caveats there is I think I've heard a lot of people say, you know, they're stronger than expected. Um, so they still could be net down a little bit, but they were you know, f- afraid the bottom was going to fall out of, the, of that sale. Um, but people have been pleased with the prices they've seen. We've had some that say like, oh, it's actually been surprisingly really good. Um, and so it, it's also kind of important to keep in mind between, you know, when we have sales, that's sort of a, um, a, a subset of, of potential sales. Um, and for a lot of people that own farmland, unless you're planning to sell it, I mean, the real value is what, what can it be accepted as collateral uh, and what expect you have going in the, you know, the long future over the course of that asset. Um, and so I, I think they still sort of sit together, but it is a kind of a puzzling time that we have, you know, places where prices are going really well, sales are still really strong, but then people overall saying, well, I feel like it's down a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, perspective. And I think it's, it's always a little hard to get a grip on some of those isolated observations that you hear relative to a, a little broader base survey. But it does indicate that there's some pockets of strength and, and probably uh, and maybe to some extent reflects what Michael was talking about with respect to the idea that there are still some people, some farming operations out there, for example, uh, that have very strong liquidity and are still uh, looking at this as a, an opportunity to expand. Um, and then that maybe that combined with this lack of good alternative investments or at least alternative investments that don't look very attractive in a low interest rate environment. So really interesting. So, Michael, you've taken a look at farmland prices um, relative to cash rents and relative to net returns to land. And, and the first one, uh, cash rents is probably self-explanatory, but you might explain what you mean when you say net return to land. Yes, the net return to land, you take your gross revenue and subtract all expenses. Uh, this would include cash and opportunity cost expenses except for land. And so that number can be directly compared to cash rent. And when I'm talking to, to groups, uh, both landowners and people that are renting ground, one of the one of the questions that comes up quite often is obviously uh, net returns have not been very strong since 2014. Uh, as Todd indicated, we did see uh, some adjustment downward in cash rent and land value, but not as much as you might think, uh, given how low uh, net returns have been since 2014. And so because of that, we, we did some more deeper investigation and, and took a look at uh, farmland price divided by uh, five-year average cash rent to kind of look at the, that relationship. And then we compared uh, farmland price divided by five-year average net return to land. We want to do more than one year because one one year could be really high or really low and, and people aren't using just one year uh, as, the, as their net return to land or their net returns uh, for the next 30 years. They're using more of a long term. And what we found out uh, essentially is people aren't using the low average net returns from the last five years when they're making cash rent and, 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 and farmland price uh, decisions. Uh, they're, they're expecting net returns to be higher uh, than what they've been in the last five years. And so some optimism, uh, if you will, uh, regarding where net returns might be heading uh, better than what we've seen uh, in the last five years. 
So you concluded that by virtue of the fact that the multiple of farmland price relative to cash rent and relative to the net returns to land is um, has been rising recently, right? Yes, the, the the farmland price net return to land has been rising uh, and is much higher than the farmland price to cash rent, uh, suggesting that they're they're not just using the the last five years of average returns uh, when they're thinking about cash rent uh, and land value decisions. The other thing we found out is very consistent with what Todd was talking about earlier. Uh, the people are expecting the historical low interest rates to continue. Uh, I would be in that camp myself. Uh, I see no reason why we would see a, a large spike in interest rates anytime soon. So uh, that, that, that's logical. Uh, another thing we did is we, uh, rather than just using five years of cash rent and five years of net return to land, we said, okay, what happens if we use 10-year averages? Uh, why is that important? Well, if you start using 10 years, you're going back into a period with very good net returns. You're going back into that uh, 2010, 2011, 2012, uh, and even 2013, where the net returns were fairly good uh, compared to what we've seen historically. And so you, if you do that, if you use 10-year average net returns, again, looking at farmland price in, re in relationship to cash rent and farmland price in relationship to net return to land, you find those two ratios almost identical today. And so that leads me to believe that they're expecting average net returns uh, when they're making cash rent and farmland uh, you know, farmland buying decisions to be closer to the 10-year average rather than the five-year average. And, and obviously, as I said, that speaks volumes because that includes some years that had better returns than what we've seen recently. Yeah, and, and better returns than what we've seen recently probably understates it, doesn't it, Michael? I mean, truthfully, that yes. was probably the most positive returns for crop agriculture we've ever seen. Yeah, the 2007-2013 period, as we've indicated in, in other uh, webinars and podcasts, is, is one of the best periods we've seen since the 1910-1914 period. Uh, and by the way, I was not alive during that period. I just, I just heard people say that <laughs> and also looking at the data. And so, and so obviously, when you start bringing in some of those years from 2007 to 2013, you're bringing in some optimism uh, with regard to where we're heading uh, and, 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 they're, and using that optimism uh, to make cash rent decisions and to purchase land. Yeah, so that's really kind of interesting when you think about the implications of that for longer term values, because if that doesn't turn out to be the case in the next few years, if we don't see those returns actually improve, um, that could have uh, some negative impact on-, on You can have some values. buyer's remorse. Yeah. Uh, that, that's certainly the case. So Todd, the other thing you've done is uh, USDA does uh, an annual farmland value or land value report, and they just released that uh, last week. And so you kind of compared uh, some of the results from the Indiana Farmland Value Survey to the information from the USDA survey, and that's pretty interesting. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the USDA survey is also conducted in June, um, and they actually survey farmers and they ask farmers, you know, what do you think the land that you farm uh, is uh, is currently worth. And it's, it's a complex survey. It's a really big survey. It's one of USDA's flagship surveys. It's also tied into the, the summer production numbers that come in and they ask about land values. And so uh, it's considered the gold standard by a lot of folks about, you know, sort of the land values in the United States. And they re release state level estimates um, and at the, at the, uh, per acre value for cropland, pasture land, and then what they call farm real estate, which is essentially land plus building structures, other improvements. Um, and all of those numbers had a sort of similar peak 
The difference in the last several years, uh, they didn't decline by quite as much, um, and they've held relatively flat. And so the numbers we're picking up in our survey are still, they've been above the USDA number since about 2010 or 11. They didn't, the USDA didn't, numbers didn't uptick quite as much in terms of the commodity price boom, which also means they haven't fallen quite as much. They're much smoother overall. Um, but they've held relatively flat. We've kind of kept the same sort of pattern that uh, cropland above uh, the uh, real estate value, um, but both sort of below what, what our survey suggests. And you've also, as, as a result of that, been able to look at what's going on around the Corn Belt, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, the nice part about the USDA data is that they, you know, they cover the entire uh, continental United States. And so we're able to look at the, you know, how does Indiana compare to its neighbors? So looking at just the Corn Belt, um, you know, here in Indiana and in Illinois, there was absolutely zero change over the last year. We saw a slight uptick in Ohio and Missouri, so uh, about 1%. And then Iowa is actually down by a little more than 1% um, from the previous year. So Iowa slipped a little bit, but kind of on average, it's sort of no change uh, across the Corn Belt in terms of cropland values. Yeah, very, very interesting, I guess, uh you know, when you compare it to the Purdue land value survey, because we wound up with uh, particularly that strong second half of 2019, which was reflected in the annual change, which didn't really quite show up in the in the USDA data. Yeah, and part of it, the USDA only collects June. So if there's any sort of inter-year variability, um, it's just not picked up. So you did some comparisons of the I states. People always like to talk about Indiana, Illinois, and Iowa. So let's do some comparisons there. Yeah, so uh, let me. So Illinois came in at the highest this year at seven thousand three hundred an acre. Iowa just below that at seven thousand one hundred seventy, and then Indiana sitting in the lowest of the three at six thousand uh, two hundred ten. And so uh, we didn't have the highs and the peaks around two thousand fourteen that we saw in, in Iowa and Indiana, but also we haven't lost quite as much value over this period. Um, our our prices look relatively stable comparatively. Yeah, the state that's experienced the sharpest decline relative to its peak is actually Iowa, right? Yeah, uh, and I, I always a little bit hesitant to compare anything to the 1980s, but I mean that's sort of the same pattern we saw there. That Iowa had the, you know, the the highest volatility in terms of the, the biggest run up and the and the, and the largest decrease. Uh, so it's probably not surprising to see that again here. Although I, you know, I have to stress much more muted than what we saw in the 1980s. So let's kind of summarize some of the results. If you look at June 2019 to June 2020, looking at the Purdue land value survey. Yeah, so again, we had that sort of first half, uh, you know, second half of 2019 uh, increase and then weakening slightly in 2020. Uh, the other thing to point, to point out for any listeners that are interested in looking at the full report, we also publish it at the regional level of the state. We have six regions, collection of about 15 counties. Um, and so we do the three land value grades across those th those six regions. Um, and in all, except for one instance, they all sort of held the same pattern of an increase through December and a, and a slight decrease uh, since December. Um, and so it, that's also a little bit surprising. You know, we've had years recently where uh, it really is a function of kind of where you live and what kind of farmland you, you hold uh, in terms of whether or not you had appreciation or uh, decreases. Um, but this year, we've pretty much held that pattern uh, uniformly across the state. 
And those key drivers were farm income, commodity prices on the negative side. And on the positive side, it was really about interest rates and limited supply of farmland on the market, right? Yep, that's that's kind of what uh, signs point towards uh, driving things right now. So the other part of the Indiana Farmland Value Survey looks at cash rents. And I know that gets heavily used by a lot of our uh, viewers and listeners uh, in terms of trying to negotiate rents. So let's talk a little bit about those, how they compare in 2020 versus 2019. Yeah, so and again, we do the three quality grades of top, average, and poor. Um, And once again, they're all up. Uh, top up 4%, average at 4.8, so almost 5%, and poor up 5.4, so uh, over 5% increase in poor quality uh, cash rents. And so, uh, you know, an increase across all three, uh, which I think is a little bit surprising to some folks, um, particularly given the, uh, you know, what we've faced this year. Um but it's also keep, important to keep in mind that, you know, a lot of those rental rates are set at the end of the last growing season or over the winter, um, where I think optimism was a little bit higher. Um, people are expecting a little bit more of a return to normal. Um, and, and so we did see that get bit into land, our cash rental rates. That's a good point about people's expectations. If you go back um, and look at the Ag Economy Barometer Survey, which we conduct as well, um, it was at its all-time high in February before the pandemic hit. And so that indicated, you know, the people were more optimistic. And Michael, I think you've looked at this as well with respect to the impact of government program payments. uh, And that's probably had an influence on these cash rental rates as well. Yeah, I think there's two things to 2000. When you're looking at 2020 cash rents, you're really looking at 2018 and and, and particularly 2019 net returns. It's always lagged one year uh, with comparing net returns to cash rent. And when you think about 2019, uh, you know, obviously we had some prevent plant problems, but uh, the way 2019 turned out, the yields were better than we thought they were going to be. There was quite a bit of optimism, uh, like you were indicating. And so, and so it's, and, and, and in addition to that, uh, there was some pretty large government payments in, in 2018, 2019. Uh, that certainly helped, uh, you know, help keep the cash rents up. Uh, and obviously, as Todd indicated, actually increased them a little bit uh, from 2019 to, to uh, 2020. Yeah, and I also think we should point out, too, that, you know, this winter we thought uh, a lot of our trade uh, problems were starting to shake out uh, favorably for the ag sector. And so people were optimistic this was going to be a great year. Yeah, very much so. So you've looked at cash rents on inflation-adjusted terms, just like you did with land values. Maybe share those results with us, Todd. Yeah, and so controlling for inflation, um, that inflationary pressure, uh, we're we're sort of just above uh, a very long run um, steady state. We had a you know the period of the '80s where cash rents were falling, and then they held relatively stable until about 2005. Similar kind of pattern rise from 2005 uh, to about 14, and declined a little bit since then. But that hump is much less um, uh, pronounced than we see with with the land values, and so uh, we're we're holding relatively steady. Yeah, so I think on inflation-adjusted terms, about a ten or eleven dollar increase compared for twenty twenty versus twenty nineteen. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's. I think it's, yeah. And then you've also taken a look at cash rent to land value ratio, and that's one that uh, is really of interest, I guess, uh, not only to farmers but also to non-farm investors. So share those results with us. Yeah. So the basic idea is that you know the 
the easiest way to make money when you own farmland is just to rent it out to somebody else to farm, right? So looking at that ratio of, you know, what percent of the land values is represented by uh, cash rent. So just cash rent relative to the land value. Um, and, and that number has declined relatively uh, steadily since the late or mid 1980s. Uh, but over the last five years or so, 2014, since the peak, it's held pretty much constant at about 3%. So it's exactly what it was last year, uh, which says that there's some sort of equilibrium between the relationship between cash rents and land values. And so if we're thinking about, you know, as Michael mentioned about, you know, setting up our, our uh, cash rent and, and farmland expectations based on what's been happening, um, you know, this would indicate that it's a relatively safe assumption that, um, you know, farmland purchasers now would see thinking that they could, you know, uh, have a sort of a 3% return, uh, passive return every year. And I think, again, that's when you're thinking of it from an investment standpoint, this kind of helps explain some of the strength that we uh, have continued to see in farmland values. It's when you compare it to some of those alternative investments, alternative safe investments or, or relatively low risk investments, that 3% return looks pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I, I just came to Purdue last year, so I had to uh, set up all my retirement accounts and, and change my retirement uh, plans. And, and 3%, uh, guarantee, uh, a, a pretty strong guarantee of 3% would be uh, very attractive right now. So if you look at the USDA data, um, you show some similar patterns, but maybe not the absolute levels uh, that we saw on the Purdue survey. Yeah, I mean, things are relatively stable to what they were uh, in 2019 across the Corn Belt. So Illinois is down a little bit, uh, almost a, a 1% drop. Iowa, or Ohio is up uh, 0.6, so between a half and one, so almost half uh, percent, 1%, percent, um, where in Iowa, Indiana, and Missouri, they've held um, uh, flat from last year. So looking at the I states again, looking at Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana, what do you see? The same pattern we saw uh, with land values in terms of you know, Iowa at the top. Uh, well, I guess that's one little difference. Uh, since I used to live in Illinois, I know there's the, the big Illinois-Iowa rivalry in different parts of the state uh, in terms of uh, land markets. Uh, so Iowa still has the highest cash rent, uh, 230 an acre. Illinois at 222, and then uh, Indiana down at 194. Um, and so, but they've all sort of held relatively stable, um, same kind of pattern we've seen over the last five years. And again, a little bit like you saw in the farmland values, uh, Iowa had a higher peak uh, back in roughly, I guess, 2014 and has had the largest decline in those cash rental rates, uh, certainly larger than we've seen here in Indiana, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's exactly it. So let's kind of summarize the results for our listeners. So uh, we saw an increase here across the state of Indiana, somewhere between four and five percent um, in cash rental rate over the last year, um, and we've kind of held steady with the relationship between cash rents and land values at a three percent return. Um, and then we also ask about going forward, um, and and there the opinions are kind of just across the map, uh, all across the map, but roughly close to no change. And I think uh, we were talking about this earlier. I think, you know, you look at the farmland value data that you collected, and I think you made a comment that if you'd asked people uh, last summer, summer of 19, uh, 
if the farmland value increases that you were showing these, you know, modest single digit increases, if that was going to be uh, uh, expected or, or uh, considered to be a good, a good change, um, people probably look at this a little differently than, than they look at it uh, today. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things, I think, because we sort of uh, things were really firing in all cylinders coming out of 2019 at the start of 2020, um, that there's a lot of reason to say there are things that are disappointing um, now. But, you know, if we had knew we were going to have this outcome a year ago, uh, people would people would have been excited to have. Yeah. If you told people a year ago that you could look to see farmland values up, I think, between four and five percent here in Indiana, you'd say, great. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, depending on which side of the room you ask, they'd be excited about the rent increases as well, right? Yeah, yeah, depending on which side, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, Michael, you've taken a look at cash rent and net returns to land here in West Central Indiana, and and you were using that for maybe some uh, implications about what's likely to happen to cash rents for the 2021 crop year. Yeah, yeah. first of all, let me back up here a little bit and, and, and uh, kind of review some of the fundamentals we've talked about with respect to cash rent and land values. Um, land values have multiple factors uh, that impact those. Net returns to land is certainly important, but what Todd was mentioning, interest rates, alternative investments, uh, the supply of land. Uh, and, and so those, those, there's a lot, multitude of factors that impact, impact uh, farmland prices. When you look at cash rent, certainly supply would matter too, but, but the main thing that drives cash rent is net returns to land. And so even though that uh, a cash rent to land value has been relatively stable the last several years, you may be entering a year or two uh, where cash there's more downward pressure for cash rents than there is for land values. Uh, so that leads me into talking about uh, what is the what is the 2020 cash rent look like uh, 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 compared to net return to land? And you know, based based on our current estimates of where prices might end up uh, in 2020, and our current estimate of government payments, the net return to land is really low. Uh, it, it's as low as it's been, if not lower than what it was in 2015. Uh, and and from 2015 to 2016, as a result. Of those, of those low net returns to land, we saw a fairly significant drop in cash rent in Indiana and other states. And so the natural question uh, to ask uh, is, is something like that, could something like that happen in 2021? And, and all I would say in response to that type of question is if we don't see something different uh, from our estimates for 2020, either because of relatively high yields, there's talk of of having high, you know, relatively high yields in different parts of the Corn Belt, or maybe an, maybe another government payment uh, that we're that we're not factoring into our net return to the land estimates. Unless something changes here, uh, I think there's quite a bit of downward pressure uh, for 2021 cash rents. And you've taken a look at the impact of net returns to land on cash rental rates over long periods of time, and and maybe give us a little insight into how rapidly cash rents adjust to changes in net returns to land. Yes, net return to land is much more variable than cash rents. That's when I was talking about uh, the price to to cash rent ratio earlier. I was using uh, multiple years of data there rather than just one uh, because net return to land is quite variable uh, compared to cash rents. Uh, uh, A graduate student and myself looked at this and essentially what we found is a, is a, a, $100 $100 uh, change in net return to land, either positive or negative, results in about a $10 uh, 
uh, change in cash rents. And so if we expect the, the net return to land in 2020 to be $100 below uh, 2019, which where it looks right now, uh, that suggests about a $10 decrease in cash rents. So when I, when I talk about downward pressure to cash rents, I'm not expecting something like for West Central Indiana to drop from 252 to 200, uh, but you know I'm, I'm expecting something smaller. Maybe seeing something around 240, 245, just some downward pressure on cash rents because of the uh, uh, the low net return to land in 2020. And that forecast would be pretty consistent with what happened from 2015 to 2016, correct? Yes. Yeah, uh, so. and, and again, it's important to point out something I said earlier. Uh, when we're looking at uh, the relationship between cash rent and net return to land, uh, net return to land has been lower than cash rent ever since 2013. Uh, you know, West Central Indiana and other parts of Indiana. And so that, that, that means that people are more optimistic uh, than the, the current net returns and, or the net returns uh, that we've seen since 2014. And so it's hard to, it's hard to factor in uh, how that impacts cash rents. But I, I still think the fact that net return to land uh, looks very low in 2020 is going to have a negative impact on 2020 cash rents. And the wild card that actually supported cash rents in uh, going into 2019 and to some extent this year was the fact that we had relatively large government program payments uh, primarily coming out of the MFP program, right? Yeah, and we could see, we could see some additional government payments. Uh, and that certainly, that certainly would uh, mitigate uh, some of the downward pressure. Yeah, so that's one of the wild cards in terms of projecting those net returns for 2020 is what happens on the government program side, right? Definitely. Well, that wraps up our review of Indiana Farmland Values uh, survey results. So visit our website at purdue.edu slash commercial ag, and you can find a detailed version of the report. And uh, as Todd indicated, lots of detail in there with respect to regional results that many of you might be interested in. So with that, thanks for listening, and I encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And on behalf of my colleagues, Michael Langemeyer and Todd Keithy and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minter. Thanks for joining us.